Let us hear God's word. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also does not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. As we begin here today on our study, not only of Psalm 1, but the Psalter in general, um, I want to do some introductory things here today as well, and then toward the end we'll look more at um, Psalm 1. Now, normally when I begin a book, I spend some time asking the questions, who wrote it, when was it written, uh, where were they, why did these things uh, happen, or what are they talking about, and so forth, the summary of these things, some of the structure, and so on and so forth. Now, because the Psalter is so involved on these kinds of questions, I've been doing a Sunday school class addressing these very things. I will address some of these things in the sermons, but I encourage you to come to Sunday school as we are doing this, and if you haven't been coming, they are online. You can go to Sermon Audio to our website and find the link there, and you can listen to these Sunday school classes if you have not been here. And I really encourage you to do so. I think it'll be very helpful uh, for you because I elaborate on many things uh, that I'll just mention here briefly in the sermons. Now, as we come to this, there are a number of ways that we can preach through the Psalms. And since I am committed to continuous expository preaching, in other words, you start in chapter 1, verse 1, and you work your way through the book, how do you do that when you have 150 chapters in a book? Or how do you do that in Proverbs and so on and so forth? Uh, When you have long books or you have some, uh, if you will, issues on on, on how to present it, how to approach it, uh, of course, you're going to have some different opinions on that and different ways that it can be done. My... um, Approach is going to be this. The Psalter is broken down into five books. And those books are of varying length. Book one are Psalms 1 to 41. And all the Psalms in this book have a similar kind of theme. Book two are Psalms 42 to 72. So 31 Psalms in this book. And this also has a different kind of theme. Then in book three, short one, only 17 psalms, Psalm 73 to 89. Again, has its own theme. And then book four, Psalms 90 to 106, again, 17 psalms, again, with its own theme. And then the Psalter ends, book five, Psalms 107 to 150, with yet another theme. And so since each one of these books has a different theme... I thought it would be helpful for us to look at every book, every theme, each time I go through the Psalter. I am not planning to start with Psalm 1 and get to 150, you know, whatever, six, seven, eight years from now. 
Okay? My plan is to more or less preach 30 psalms at a time. And after I come to the end of that, we'll go somewhere else. You know, Book of Romans or, you know, there's different things we're thinking about what to preach on next. And so um, that way we won't be overwhelmed and, and even burdened by such a long book. But that way also we'll be able to touch on each of the themes that we see in the Psalter. And so we're not just focusing on one theme for a year or whatever it happens to be, but we'll be focusing on all of them throughout that time. So if you have five books, that's, again, 150 divided by five, that's going to turn out to be roughly 30 psalms per time I go through it. Um, And if you take that same 20% ratio to each of the five books, that means I'll be covering 20% of each book each time. In other words, book one, I'll do Psalms 1 to 8. Then we'll go to book 2, and we'll look at Psalms 42 to 47. And then in book 3, we'll look at Psalms 73 to 76. Book 4, Psalms 90 to 93. And then we'll conclude with book 5, 107 to 116. In this case, it turns out to be 32 Psalms. And that's because the next time I come back and go through it, we'll have Psalm 119. And I'm only intending to look at Psalms 117, 18, and 19 in book 5, which leaves us with 25 psalms altogether in that segment, but I think you understand why. (laughs) So this is my approach. I think it's going to work well. Um, Time will tell. (laughs) But I I like this idea. I've wrestled with a number of things of how to to approach this, but, uh, but I think this will be helpful for us. So with that in mind, Give you a little foretaste of what, where I'm going with this. Let's now talk about the importance of the Psalter. Many people have said over the centuries that the Psalter is really the Old Testament in a nutshell. Every major theme, every major doctrine is found here, and even minor ones too. It covers so many things here from the Old Testament. We have creation, the fall, the curse, the promise of the Messiah, the flood, uh, Abraham and the covenants and the fathers, uh, Exodus and um, uh, Moses and the law, the wilderness, the conquest, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, as well as Saul, of course, David and the covenant with David, the exile, and then the return from exile, plus many other things. This is a summary of the Old Testament, but in poetic form. Now, others have said this is not only a summary of the Old Testament, but in many ways it's a summary of all the scriptures, especially when we see how the New Testament quotes from the Psalms. The New Testament quotes the Psalter more than any other book in the Old Testament. And so some then say this is not only the most important book in the Old Testament, but the most important book in all of Scripture. Well, that's kind of hard to make that claim, but you understand the point. It's very significant. Now, let me take a a few moments here and read a few things from some of the commentators I'm using. This is a commentary on the Psalms by a man named Tremper Longman III. And uh, you know him because in our scripture readings through the Old Testament, chronologically, he's the one that came up with the order for the Old Testament. So anyway... Uh, Let me read some of his opening thoughts here. 
The book of Psalms is, it, is the heart of the Old Testament. Athanasius, the important 4th century church father, called the Psalms, quote, an epitome of the whole scriptures, end quote. In the same century, Basil, the bishop of Caesarea, remember where Paul was in prison for two years, pointed out that this collection of poems presents, quote, a compendium of all theology, end quote. And Martin Luther, the 16th century reformer, called the book of Psalms, quote, a little Bible. Indeed, the Psalms are not only the heart of the Old Testament, they are a pivotal, pivotal witness and anticipation of Jesus Christ, and thus a perfect illustration of Augustine's statement that, quote, the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed, and the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. End quote. Jesus made this clear when he told his disciples that the Psalms spoke of him. Luke twenty two forty four. It is crucial to note that the book of Psalms is not a theological textbook, but rather the libretto of the most vibrant worship imaginable. The book of Psalms does not only want to inform our intellect, but to stimulate our imagination, arouse our emotions, and stir us onto holy thoughts and actions. Let me now read from <clears throat> William Van Gemeren, another commentary that I'm using here. I'm actually using 12 plus a few other books. Um, and this one, he says these things. <clears throat> In 150 Psalms, the Holy Spirit has given us more than a book of Israel's prayer and praise. The book of Psalms is a cross-section of God's revelation to Israel and of Israel's response in faith to the Lord. The Psalms mirror the faith of Israel. In them we receive windows that enable us to look out on our brothers and sisters in the faith of more than 2,500 years ago. They invite us to experience how God's people in the past related to him. They witness to the glory of Zion, to the Davidic covenant, to the fidelity of God, to the exodus and conquest traditions, to God, the creator, redeemer, king, and to Yahweh as the divine warrior. We see an interplay of many different motifs and emphases, which, when isolated, help us to understand better the Old Testament as a whole and its bearing on the New Testament. The book of Psalms is God's prescription for a complacent church, because through it, he reveals how great, wonderful, magnificent, wise, and utterly awe-inspiring he is. If God's people before the Incarnation could have such a faith in the Lord, a witness to his greatness and readiness to help, how much more should this be true among 21st century Christians? The book of Psalms can revolutionize our devotional life, our family patterns, and the fellowship and witness of the Church of Jesus Christ. He also then says this, The Psalms encourage a dialogue and relationship between God and his children. Though no Old Testament book has been more important in the history of the church than the book of Psalms, we are in danger of losing it, partly because of the lack of use of the Psalms themselves in churches and partly because of lack of use of the skills required for understanding them. Our Lord expects his church to incorporate this portion of inspired scripture into all aspects of Christian living and communication. 
And then he says this. The value of the Psalms increases when we approach them as the word of God to his human creatures in their own language. Study them as literary masterpieces inspired by the Spirit of God. Value their literary forms and view them as, a, as windows into Israel's communion with God. In other words, we can't just read what it says and understand the point. We must also see the Psalms as a work of art and interpret it as such. And then lastly, here from him, he says this. The Psalter opens dimensions of faith, hope, and love. The people of God before the Incarnation invite us to celebrate, praise, cry, pray, lament, and hope for justice, righteousness, and the kingdom of God and his Messiah. Each psalm is a window that opens to the faith of Israel and invites us to walk together with the saints before us on the way to God, which leads to the establishment of his kingdom on earth. And then let me read a little bit from Tremper Longman again, but this little book of his is called How to Read the Psalms. Very helpful. And uh, he uh, says this here first. The Psalms are a kind of literary sanctuary in the Scripture, the place where God meets his people in a special way, where his people may address him with their praise and laments. In the same way that the sanctuaries of the Old Testament, primarily the tabernacle and temple, were considered to be at the physical center of the people of God, so too is the book of Psalms in the middle of the Bible. The Psalms appeal to the whole person. They demand a total response. The Psalms inform our intellect, arouse our emotions, direct our wills, and stimulate our imaginations. When we read the Psalms with faith, we come away changed and not simply informed. Now this is an important point for those of us in the Reformed tradition that sometimes think that as long as we have the right understanding, that's all we need. The Psalms are designed to impact everything about us. And so we must then try to read it in that way. And then he says this. It is stating the obvious to say that the book of Psalms is in the Old Testament. It is more significant to discover that the Old Testament is in the Psalms. It has long been recognized that the Psalms are a microcosm of the message of the Old Testament. Think about it. There are Psalms which extol God's creation of the world. In addition, we learn that he providentially cares for the world. We are further instructed that the wages of sin is death, and that God redeems his wayward people. We hear about God's law and his wisdom. Moreover, we see that God blesses his people and curses his enemies. The Psalms teach that the righteous will live and the wicked will die. And then he quotes from a man named J. Anderson. The Psalms include illustrations of every religious truth which is necessary for us to know. I could read so many more selections from these and other commentaries. Just some very helpful things. And my point here is very simple. This is maybe the most significant thing that I have attempted to preach on yet. Frankly, I'm a bit overwhelmed. (laughs) And I waited until now because I didn't think I was ready. 
And even now, I'm not sure I'm completely ready to preach on the Psalter. It's a daunting task. I have spent at least 12, maybe 15 times more time in preparation on the Psalter than I have done with any other book. And that's not to boast or complain or anything like that, but just because it's so significant. It's also partly because I am not a natural poet, and so it takes more effort for me to see the poetry, the artistry, and to try to bring it out. How can somebody preach and teach the main ideas and points that not only engage our minds, but also engages our imaginations, our wills, our emotions? How can we scientifically look at a song, seeing the artistic elements, and yet not becoming academic about it? How can I bring out the poetic elements in Hebrew that we lose in translation to any language? Frankly, it's quite impossible to do it completely unless you all learn Hebrew. And even then, it'll be a challenge because there's just so much here. But one way for me to try to do this is to give you an insert in your bulletins. And I'm giving you a more literal translation. It is my translation of Psalm 1. And we're going to spend a portion of each of the sermons on each psalm looking at the artistry of the Psalter. Because that, too, is part of God's inspired word. God didn't just inspire the ideas. He inspired the words. And in this case, the artistry of the words. I'm going to try to bring some of that out for us as we go along. Okay. This is a challenge, and there's no question about it. And anybody who tries to preach the Psalms completely thoroughly is going to have this challenge. And it's a challenge also because poetry in Hebrew is different than poetry in English. Okay. So, frankly, <clears throat> I'd appreciate your prayers. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> and hopefully the learning curve won't take very long for all of us here. Now in English, we focus on certain poetic elements, most notably rhyme and meter. In Hebrew, um, meter is at least unknown. They probably used it, but we're not totally sure how. Whenever we sing a a hymn, we've sung two already, plus the doxology, there's a rhythm to our singing. To our poems, we have a rhythm in English. Almost in all of them, even in a kind of free verse, you tend to have some of it. And it's also very consistent. In Hebrew, however, we rhyme ideas, not sounds. And um, this then makes it a little more challenging, but certainly not impossible. God gave it to us. He gave us the spirit to understand it, but it is going to take a little bit more work. The challenge in Hebrew is it varies from verse to verse. In English, if you're reading a sonnet or a limerick or a ballad, it's going to be pretty much the same all the way through. If you have iambic pentameter, it pretty much is all the way through the song or the poem. Even if you're using free verse and reading a poem in that, you tend to have some kind of structure. In Hebrew... Um, the rules seem to change from verse to verse. 
Okay? There are some overall patterns, but nevertheless, uh, it is much less consistent. This rhyming of ideas we call parallelism. Okay? And we talked about some of that even this morning here in Sunday school, some of the different kinds. The thing, though, in Hebrew is it's not used in every verse. Okay? And so, again, there's much more variety. Now, another thing to, to keep in mind is that when we come to these psalms, we are not just talking about poems. Most of the psalms were sung by the people of Israel. The problem is we have very, very little information about how they were sung and the music that was used. As someone who has had a musical background, I'd be extremely interested if we ever found such a thing in the Dead Sea area or wherever. Okay? Um, but at this point, we don't have it. And so we have to remember that these were sung, but we're going to focus on the poetry of it. Okay? And so for all of the challenges here, back to what I was reading from these different commentators, the benefits are really limitless. This portion of the word of God can bring incredible blessing to every one of us. Okay? Now, <clears throat> my approach to preaching is going to help us here. My approach is very simple. What's the text say? Let the text speak for itself. I'm not up here waxing eloquent about all these wonderful things. <clears throat> I'm just saying, okay, here's verse 1, here's what it says. Here's what it means for us. And just go right through the text. By doing that, that's going to help us here too. But again, we have the added challenge of not just focusing on the ideas, but looking at the artistry. All right, so let me now start to focus more specifically on Psalm 1. Psalms 1 and 2 are considered the foundation on which all the other psalms are built. By understanding Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, the rest of the psalms will make more sense. Because these are so specifically chosen to be at the beginning of the Psalter, we're not going to rush through these two psalms. We're going to spend some extra time on these, and the better we understand these, the better the rest of them will make some sense. Some have tried to make the case that these were originally one psalm. Okay. <clears throat> I don't agree with that position, but there are definitely some similarities with Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, and I'll bring that out as we go along. The New Testament tells us that David wrote Psalm 2, presumably, though it doesn't tell us, maybe David also wrote Psalm 1. Another image here to use, other than the foundation stones, is the pillars. Remember I just read from Longman that talked about entering into the sanctuary, Psalms 1 and, and 2 are like the two pillars okay, right, at the doorway, the two door jams, if you will, the two pillars that we enter into to come into the sanctuary of the Psalter. We've got to come to pillar 1 and understand the wisdom of Psalm 1 and to live that way if we're going to rightly worship our God throughout the rest of the Psalter. We need to completely understand who the king is of Israel and his son if we're going to rightly worship our God throughout the rest of the Psalter. So if you think of the Psalter as a kind of sanctuary, these are the two pillars. This is the way in. 
And so again, whether you have the foundation image or the pillar image, uh, these are very significant. And uh, so we're going to spend a little extra time on them because of it. Okay. So, for the rest of our time today, let's begin looking at Psalm 1. And as I said before, what I would like to do is for us to try to see the artistry of the psalm. And that'll be our focal point for the rest of our time today. And then next time, and probably another time, we will look at the content and the importance of it for it. So, hopefully you have your hand out here. Uh, again, there's some on the back table if you, if you don't have one. All right, again, this is my translation of the Hebrew. Okay, let's just go right down through this. Blessings of the man who. All right, now let me pause here. Notice there's no verb there. Notice that blessings is plural. Okay, it's a noun, not a verb. Okay. And note, it's only two words. The, the word, number of words in parentheses, that means how many words are used in Hebrew. And, of course, we have our English translation. So there are four words in English. There are actually only two in Hebrew. Okay. <clears throat> Blessings of the man. And then you have the relative pronoun who. Okay. Now, these three words are this in Hebrew. Now, try to listen to how they sound. Ashrei ha'ish asher. Now, I'm trying to tell you that in Hebrew, this is clear artistry. Ashrei ha'ish asher. All three of these first words have the Hebrew letter Aleph and the Hebrew letter Shin, plus the vowel uh, A vowels in it. Again, Ashrei ha'ish asher. The first two have the Hebrew letter Yod, which is like a Y. The, the first and the third have the Hebrew letter Resh, which is an R. The artistry is very intentional. Ashrei Haish Asher. What a way to start the Psalter. Blessings of the man who. That's what we see, not just in Psalm 1, not just verses 1 and 2, but the whole Psalter. The blessings that we enjoy as the righteous are communicated to us in all the psalms, in one way or another. All right, now, after the relative pronoun, you have three clauses. In each of them, four words in the Hebrew. Did not walk in the counsel of the wicked ones, and in the way of sinners he did not stand, and in the seat of scorners he did not sit. Notice that all three of them have a completed action verb, past tense, and they're all negated, right? Did not. And all three of these clauses have a prepositional phrase followed by a plural noun. In the counsel of wicked ones, in the way of sinners, in the seat of scorners. Okay. Notice that these are in parallel. In other words, each line is saying something similar. But not exactly the same. There is a progression of thought here. From walking to standing to sitting. I'll explain that more, Lord willing, next week. So we could call this synthetic parallelism. Some try to claim that this is a staircase parallelism, okay, that you're building on it, okay, whatever. Okay, but clearly we have a parallel structure. This is a rhyming of ideas. 
Okay. Now, notice also this. In that first of the three, note that the verb begins it, and then you have the prepositional phrase with the plural noun. But in the next two, it switches. You have the prepositional phrase with the plural noun followed by the verb. We call this chiasm. Think of an X. Okay? So you have verb, prepositional phrase, plural noun, and then you have prepositional phrase, plural noun with the verb in the next two. And so it switches. Again, it's just the artistry. God wants us to see words used artfully here, and that's how the psalmist does it. All right, so verse 2. It begins with the word rather, which in Hebrew actually are two different words put together. And then you have two lines. Again, these are in parallel. In the law of Yahweh is his delight, and in his law he is meditating by day and night. Okay. Notice it builds. Two words, three words, four words. See the artistry there. Okay. Note these are considered synthetic parallel statements. In other words, you have the one line and the next line says a little bit more. They're very similar, but the next line says a little bit more about delighting in the law of Yahweh. Also, the verb shows a continuous action. He is meditating on a regular basis. The verb says that, and then you also have by day and night, which show that too. And then in verse 3, we come to this. And he is like a tree. Again, just two words in the Hebrew. And so note the simile. Here's a figure of speech, simile, right, like or as. He is like a tree. How is he like a tree? Well, two things. First, he is being planted upon the canals of water. Okay, that is a passive participle showing continuous action. And then you have the relative clause, which, and three parts to it. Its fruit is giving in its time, its leaf is not falling, and all that he is doing is prospering. Those three lines are in parallel, basically saying the same thing, but each one is slightly different. I would consider it synthetic parallelism. Okay. But all the verbs here are showing a continuous action. This is a regular blessing in the present, not just in the future, but something that we enjoy right now if we are a righteous person. Now, in addition to this, note there are 17 words here in this verse. Okay? And in eight of them, you have an L, the Lamed letter in Hebrew. It's an L. In eight more times, you have two gutturals, what we call ayin and aleph. Now, it's hard to replicate that, but you just kind of spit a little bit when you say the word. Okay? But the point is, there is something to hear in this verse. Okay? Not just arrangement of words and parallel structure, but hear the L repeating. Hear that sound repeating. Okay? Again, this is part of the artistry. You can't do it in English, but it's there in the Hebrew. Verse 4. Note again, we begin with two words. Not so, and then the wicked ones. And then rather, again, is two words like we saw in verse 2. And now you have another simile, like the chaff, which is just one word in Hebrew, and then the relative pronoun, which, and then you have the rest of it, the wind is driving it away. Boy, what a difference to verses 1 to 3, isn't it? Verses 1 to 3, do you see all these words? Okay. A total of 41 words 
in verses 1 to 3. And in verses 4 to 5, you only have 19. There's a lot to say about the righteous. Not much to say about the wicked. Do you see how that's given to us just by the number of words given? Okay. And so verses 1 to 3, lengthy, developed. Verse 4, very terse. Note the simile. In verse 3, it's like a tree. In verse 4, it's like the chaff. In the Hebrew, they sound very similar. Like a tree is ka'etz. Like the chaff is kamotz. Ka'etz versus kamotz. Sound the same, but very different. In verse 1, the first word is blessings. In verse 4, the first word is not. Intentional contrast. In verse 5, again, two words begin. We translate it as one, therefore, the two words in the Hebrew. And so therefore, notice verses 1 through 5 all begin with two words. Verse 2 especially is a conjunction. Verse 5 now here is the conjunction. Okay. And note how that contrasts with verse 6. One word that begins it. Okay. Again, see how it's arranged. All right. Two clauses here now in verse 5. Again, in parallel, the wicked ones will not stand in the judgment or the sinners in the congregation of the righteous ones. Okay. <clears throat> saying virtually the same thing, but I would call it synthetic, meaning there is a, a, a new and different idea in the second line compared to the first, but very similar. And notice there are four words in the that first of the two and three in the second, and that's because there's the, uh, what we call ellipsis. Big fancy word that means the second line is assuming a word or words from the first line. So what's assumed in the second line that's not there? Right? The verb, right? The wicked ones will not stand in the judgment, <clears throat> nor will the sinners stand in the congregation of the righteous ones. You see how the verb is assumed in the second line. That's why there's only three words there. <coughs> okay. Also, of these nine words, three of them end in the sound E. It's a hierakiot in the Hebrew. Okay. E. So again, you're hearing something artistically. Then verse 6 begins with one word here, for. and brings it all together. And then two parallel statements. Yahweh is knowing the way of the righteous ones, but the way of the wicked ones will perish. Do you see the contrast? We call this antithetic parallelism. These two lines are, are going together, but they're saying the opposite. So it's called antithetic. Note also the chiasm. The verb begins the first one, and then you have the way of the righteous ones. And the second one is the way of the wicked ones that begins the clause, and then you have the verb. Again, think of an X. All right. Notice that Yahweh is found in the first clause. He is with the righteous. He's not in the second clause because he is not with the wicked. Notice that way is found in both of them. And another thing that you're to hear when you're hearing it in Hebrew. Six times the letter Y is used. Now sometimes it could be Y, sometimes it can be E. Think of how we use Y in English. And five times you have the, the letter D used. 
So again, these sounds are repeated, showing the artistry and so forth. All right, now, whenever you come to any passage of Scripture, look at what name of God is being used. What do we see here? See God's covenant name, Yahweh, used twice, verse 2 and verse 6. He is the focal point. Yahweh, our covenant Lord. How do you come into this Psalter sanctuary? Well, you come to Yahweh. You follow in His ways. And thus you will be blessed. Alright, now, let me also show this. We looked at each verse, but we can also look at the broader structure. Notice the obvious point. Verses 1 to 3 go together, speaking of the righteous. Verses 4 and 5 go together, speaking of the wicked. And in verse 6, you have the final destinies. Now, in your English translations, usually there is a space between sections. And you have that, at least the New King James has it here, showing those very breaks. And it makes sense. But look also this way. Verse 1 is a negative statement, isn't it? Did not. Verses 2 and 3 are positive statements. Verses 4 and 5 are negative statements. Not so, right? Shall not stand. And in verse 6, um, it's stated positively, but obviously the second part of, of that is not so kind and not so good. Okay? So note this negative, positive, negative, positive. And then if you look on the back of your handout insert here, we can look at the whole psalm as a chiasm. Again, think of an X. So verses 1 and 2, you have the discriminating way of the godly. And in verse 6, the discriminating way of God. And then in the middle, you have the blessed present of the godly. In verses 4 and 5, the cursed future of the wicked. Look at the next one. I'm not sure it's either or. I think it's all of these, actually. This is so well written. Verses 1 and 2 speak of the righteous, verses 4 and 5 the wicked, and then in the middle you have the simile of the tree and the simile of the chaff. And then, of course, the conclusion of verse 6. And then thirdly, look, verse 1, the godly disassociate from the wicked, but then at the very end, God disassociates from the wicked. Verse 2, the godly associate with God's law. Verse 6a, God associates with the godly. So there's so much intentional artistry in this psalm that uh, I just wanted to call your attention to it. What does this teach you about our God? Is this just an academic exercise? If you're thinking that, you've missed the whole point. Do you see the beauty of God? Do you see the creativity of our God? God isn't just about propositions. God likes art. He likes music. He likes poetry. And so the artful use of words, here I've tried to draw your attention to some of that. And what God the Holy Spirit did here, possibly through David, here in regard to the very first psalm in the Psalter. And so... We're going to stop with some of these introductory things here today, and we'll look more at what it all means here beginning next time. Let's pray together. Our Father and God, we thank you for your word, and and, uh, hear now such a different 
part of your word. And uh, we thank you, Lord, that you have made yourself known to us in a variety of ways, in a variety of, of stories, in a variety of images, in a variety of genres, here the genre of poetry. And Lord, we do pray that you would then teach us what true wisdom is, what righteousness is here in this psalm, that, that this may then provide that foundation for everything else that we see here in the Psalter and, frankly, everything else in our lives. We thank you, Lord, for, for your word, and may it truly bless us here as we begin this study of the Psalter. We pray these things then, Lord, for your honor and glory. In Christ's name, amen. 